word of prayer. Father, thanks for a beautiful morning out and for being here with us. Thank you for this time we can share with one another to learn from your word. Thank you so much for it. Thank you that you've given us an understanding in it that we may know what's going to happen to an extent and that we wouldn't be caught by surprise and that we could be a testimony of those around us in this world. And we just thank you again for your son who died to redeem us and for the salvation that is ours. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Um, last week we went through Matthew 24 and 25 and admittedly we went through it very quickly. Um, and there were some questions left over, so I figured before we start today, I'm going to go back over just a few things in Matthew 24, 25 to sort of help sort some things out, hopefully, to sort some things out. Um, and then what we're going to be doing is looking at Revelation chapter 12 and 13. Um, and the reason we don't have notes is because we're basically doing a whole chapter verse by verse, and it's really hard to do overheads for that kind of thing. So we're just going to start in the scripture and work our way ahead. Um, but anyways, if you turn to Matthew 24 and 25, um, again, I apologize last week because usually this is something, when I teach this, it takes two or three weeks to, to work through. But we only had one hour. So it's a little hard to cover everything in one hour. We won't spend a lot of time here, but just a few minutes. The whole idea with Matthew 24 and 25, again, is to set the context. So what is the context? Christ is leaving the temple for the last time. He's never going to go back to that temple. He's been rejected by Israel. Now, he's not been rejected by everybody in Israel, but the leadership has rejected him. The religious leaders have rejected him. As a nation, he has been rejected, and he's leaving the temple. And as he's going out, the disciples are pointing out to the temple how beautiful it is and all the big stones. And it was one of the wonders of that world. It was a beautiful place of great beauty and magnificence. And Herod had spent a long time building this thing. Um, over 46 years, we know, in one of the passages where it says, what do you mean this thing's been built for 46 years? And you're going to tear it down and rebuild it in three days? Of course, Christ was talking about the temple of his body, not the physical temple of Israel. But uh, it was a beautiful thing. Christ said, you see, one stone will not left, be left on another till it's all torn down. And so all the disciples asked him, well, when is this going to happen? When is the temple going to be torn down? What is going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, they had figured out that he was the Messiah. So what question in the Jewish mind is being asked? When is the rapture? No, they didn't know about a rapture. The rapture was a total mystery, right? What's a mystery? It's hidden, now it's revealed. That was something that, that, that was not even in their minds at all. They're asking, when are you going to establish your kingdom? When are you going to end this age? In the Jewish mind, there was two ages. There was this age and the age to come. So when are you going to end this age and start the age to come? That's the question. So what question is Christ going to answer? That one or a different one? He's going to answer that one. It's the context. That's what we got to, that's very important to understand. You know, again, context, context, context is going to drive your interpretation of this. Because if you just jump in the middle of this passage and start off in some direction, you're going to wind up all over the map. 
you have to have a starting point. And the starting point is when are you going to establish your kingdom? And the idea there, when are you going to be revealed, is the revelation of Christ as a Messiah to the nation. When are you going to reveal yourself? When is that going to be? And so Christ gives them the answer. And the way he gives them the answer is he doesn't give them a date. He gives them, what's it going to be like when I come? What's Generally, what's going to be happening? And we read of wars, rumors of wars. We read of false Christ arising all over the world. All right? We see of earthquakes and pestilences and, and all kinds of trouble all over the world. And he said these are like birth pains. They're going to get fat closer and closer and closer and closer. And they're going to build in intensity. And we sort of see that happening today. And then he says, what are you going to see? And then, then it says, the sun and the moon are going to be darkened. And you're going to see the sign of the Son of Man coming in the heavens with power and great glory. What is that? That's the sign of him coming back to do what? To establish the kingdom. They didn't understand thousand-year reign. They understood the, the kingdom age. But that's what they were asking about. And that's what Christ is answering. We know it's a thousand years. Right. They only understood it was yeah. a kingdom. But that is what he's right. That's what he's answering. The tribulation that he's describing a lot. Right. He talks about the great tribulation. There's some, okay. you know, when you see Matthew 24, then there shall be great tribulation. He's talking about the squeezing. Mm -hmm. He's talking about that time. Now, we understand it to be the seventh, 70th week of Daniel or the tribulational period, we call it, which is divided. They, didn't know that's what it was called then, they didn't have those terms. We use those terms now. They didn't have those terms. And Christ did not specifically spell out the details of the 70th week. All right. We, we understand that by comparing Daniel 9 with Matthew 24 with what we're going to look at today, Revelation 12 and 13. We will not be here because he's describing it from a Jewish perspective because that's the question they're asking. They are Jews. The, the, the idea of the rapture, the idea of a, that, that's not been revealed yet. There are Jewish people, because it says, remember, here's the other thing. If, when you're in Judea, flee to the mountains. Well, who in the world is living in Judea? Jews. This is, this is all a Jewish context. This is not church context. This is Jewish context. And, and it's talking about this, the establishment of the kingdom. That's what Christ is giving them the answer to. All right? And then what he does is he says, now, you've got to be careful because people are going to say, hey, here's the Christ. And they're going to say, we, you know, he showed up, we got him over here in this, this place, or he's out in a desert somewhere. And Christ is saying, listen, when I come back, there's not going to be any mistaking of my return. How is that? Well, he turns the lights out in the heavens, and you see the glory of God coming back, which I believe is the Shekinah glory that you see in the Old Testament, the glory of God. The blazing glory. And the world is going to see that. Now, just, just as an aside, we talked about the rapture earlier. In the rapture, do we see the blazing glory of God coming to earth? No. Yeah, there's a difference. So that's why we infer that there is a rapture. There's a first phase to Christ's second coming, which is secret, which only the believers take part in. And then there's the public, worldwide, everybody sees it coming to establish the kingdom. 
that nobody can miss because you've got the blazing, brilliant, blinding, Shekinah glory of God on its way back to this planet. And you can really see it because there aren't any stars and sun and moon to compete. Not that they could compete anyways. Are what? No, not necessarily. No, no. And again, the the picture of the last trump is just at the time of the calling. I mean, that that's the imagery there. In those days, when you wanted to move as a camp, somebody would blow a trumpet, a particular tune, and you would know, hey, we're going to be moving out in about an hour, so we need to get ready. Um, that that's how they did it in those days. Um, but this is what this is what Christ is answering. And then what Christ does, he gives some illustrations. And we, we really blitzed through those. So well, let's spend just a couple moments, not too much time, but just a couple minutes going back over them. Because some people had questions about that. Um, I got some questions here from Sammy. So I'm, do you mind if I go down through them? Okay. Um, one of them, she said, it, first one, it occurred to me the brightness of Christ at his time of his coming is the same light that was on the day, first day of creation and the glory of God. Yeah, I, I agree. It's the glory of God that's coming. Mm -hmm. The Shekinah glory, the unveiled glory. Um, it wasn't until the fourth day of creation that the sun, moon, and stars were created, right. but on the first day, God said that there He still had light, um, he, and there's still that blazing, brilliant, blinding. And in fact, the Bible talks about God being in light unapproachable. And whenever you see the throne of God in heaven, when you see a blazing, brilliant, blinding glory of God that's there. All right? Um, and by the way, the New Jerusalem doesn't need a sun because we got the blinding glory of God that's there illuminating it. Um, she, um, the second point was that the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky will happen in conjunction with the events of Revelation 19, 11 through 21, which is when we come back with him. Yes, that's true. We come back with Christ. We're going to be part of his retinue on his way back to this earth, according to Revelation 19, and we'll talk about that later. But yeah, that's true. Um, there was a question of the marriage supper of the Lamb, and, and again, we're not... This is one of those where when I was growing up, I was always taught that what happens is we're raptured, we have the judgment seat of Christ, and then we all sit down for the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven during the tribulation. And um, that probably could be the case. But the more I looked at it, the more I started putting together, well, Christ had several parables of, concerning a, one of them was a great supper, one is the marriage of the king's son. You have the parable of the ten virgins. Then you have Revelation 19. And as I started putting them all together, I think the better way to understand it is that the imagery is that the millennium itself is a picture of the marriage supper. And the reason I mean that is because in Revelation 19, um, if you go there, it says, John, um, that's will come and, and let's look at the, the marriage of the kings of, of the bride. And you see the bride arrayed in fine linen, white and clean. And then immediately he starts showing, um, he said, for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And then immediately, what do you see happening? Us coming back with Christ. Follow? And when does the, revelation, when does the, the imagery of Revelation 19 occur? At the beginning of the tribulation or at the end? If I look at the passage, it appears that that is, that is really at the end. I mean, basically what it is, is 
you have all, of course, Revelation 19 occurs after all Revelation 4 through 18, which is all the tribulational period. And then you see, well, let's look, John is told, um, hey, the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And immediately we have the supper, us coming back with him to the wedding supper. And that's why I would say it's the millennium. Does anybody follow that? If you just look at Revelation 19 and read it, it doesn't appear that that thing spans seven years of the tribulation, right? It seems that it spans, or it occurs right at the end on our way back because there's no, there's no break in the flow of the, of, um, the text. Follow? 19 verse 9 is the reference that I had previously thought, although I'm always willing to mm-hmm. learn better and correct my thinking because I've already corrected it about Matthew 24 yeah. being the rapture, because now I know it's not. But, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's your thing here, Revelation 19, 9. And again, one of the image, image, yeah, imageries of Christ's second coming is, of course, what? The, 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 um, the Jewish marriage customs. Well, how did the Jewish marriage customs work? Well, you'll go away to prepare a place. When the time came, you'll come and get your bride, take you back to your father's house, and there would be a feast. All right? And although that's a, a, a good imagery, we've we got to be careful not to try and force... Force the text to fit the imagery instead of the imagery of the text. Follow what I'm trying to get at? Even though the Jewish wedding celebration is a week long. Most of them were a week long. If, if you were poor, you didn't last that long. Some of them lasted longer. It, it, it's, it's an illustration. Christ is trying to make sort of an illustration. But we need to be careful and, and not say he's going to pattern his second coming after a wedding, the marriage custom, rather he's using the marriage custom as an illustration of it. Does that make any? So, you following what I'm saying there? Yeah, bottom line, you're saying the marriage supper occurs in the second. I, I, I sort of see the marriage supper as being the millennium, because then when you look, go look at the, the um, and, and here's another couple of things that sort of lend to that. The, the, the parable of the Great Supper, you know, where the king makes a feast and invites everybody and nobody wants to show up. That, I think, is a good imagery of it. And then remember when Christ says that those are, many are going to come from the east and the west and sit down to eat in the kingdom, and the children of the kingdom are going to be cast out. Well, what's that a reference to? Clearly the millennium. And then you see the, par- the, the, um, the marriage of the king's son, the parable of the marriage of the king's son, where the, the wedding feast is provided and nobody wants to come. So you go out on the highways and the byways and compel them to come in. And the ones who are originally bidden, Jews, are going to be cast out. And the only way you get in is you've got you to be invited and you've got to have the bright clothing on. You know, we understand that to be the righteous, you know, our, not our self-righteousness, but the righteousness what God gives us. All right? So I'm, I'm saying, and you've got, got to work through this, but as I, as I put all the parables together, all the passages together, I think the best picture is the, 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 the marriage supper of the Lamb is, is sort of a reference to the entire kingdom period. 
when we rule and reign. And quite honestly, in heaven, are we going to need to eat? No, I mean, we can eat for enjoyment, right? Because if you read Revelation 21, 22, the tree of life is there, and we have, there's fruit to eat that we can enjoy. So certainly we can eat to enjoy. But we're not going to eat because if we don't, we starve to death in heaven. It's going to be different. And, and again, it, it can go either way. I, I just see it best. I see all the passages best fitting that imagery. Um, although it's not a hill to die on. All right? And again, we're just trying to put all the patches together and make them all fit coherently. Um, and then uh, the thousand-year reign is really the honeymoon period. I, yeah, I agree with that. It, that's, we're going to rule and reign with Christ, right? That's part of our reward. Now, do we need to rule and reign with Christ in the eternal state? No. no. Who are you going to rule over? There's nobody to rule. Everybody's perfect. There is no need to rule over anything. But certainly in the kingdom, there's going to be a need for us to rule with Christ. We're going to be part of the governmental structures, however those look during that time. That's part of our reward. Um, and then Matthew 24, there's a couple of questions on um, the idea of the Matthew 24 passage. And the idea of Matthew 24, and I made right at the end of the class, is... If Matthew 24 is talking about the, re the revelation of Christ when he comes back to establish his kingdom and the signs that he talks about we see today, what should that tell us about the rapture? Closer. It's closer. Although Matthew 24 is not telling us about the rapture, it's certainly telling us about an event that occurs after the rapture, an event for which we see stuff happening right now. So that would tend us to make us believe that the rapture is even closer. Again, Christ did not give the date. He did not give you a calendar date. But he said, this is what it's going to be like. Now, could the Lord come back tomorrow? Sure. He could, he, you know, he could take another hundred years. I don't know. I don't think it's going to be that long, but I don't know. We, we don't know. And why is that? Because he wants us to be ready. Because if he told us the day and the hour, we wouldn't be ready until we just at the last minute we get our act together. Knowing humans, that's the way we operate, you know. And then um, a couple of the questions were the one taken and one left. And let me just work through the, the illustrations. Remember what we're saying here. These are illustrations. Christ is trying to say, how do you be prepared for my second coming? Now, again, he did not say the day or the hour, right? But he's given them warning. Say, when you see, the, when you see a fig tree put forth its leaves, what do you know? Summer's near. You know, it's like when you see the cherry blossoms in Washington, what do you know? Spring. Spring is around the corner. All right? You don't know the date, you don't know the hour, but you know it's quick, it's soon. And that's what he's saying. When you see all of these signs starting to line up, what should you know? The coming is close. He didn't say when. He said it's really close. And in fact, it's so close that the people who are alive to see the signs begin provided they don't die, are there to see it end. In other words, this is not something that's going to be protracted out over a long period of time. This is going to be something that once it begins and once it starts rolling, it's going to culminate pretty quickly. That's the illustration. It's not the establishment of the Israelite nation. That's not what this is talking about. It's an, it's an illustration. Now, the late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey, said it was 
the establishment of the Jewish nation. And from 1948, one generation, that's 40 years, 1988. No, you don't need to go down there because we've missed 88 now by 20 years and we're still going. All right. That's not what it's talking about. It's just saying it's an illustration. It was a common saying that every Jew who listened to this would understand immediately what Christ was saying. When you see those leaves come forth, you know that summer's right around the corner. It's just a common saying of the day. And then he uses the illustration of the days of Noah. What happened there? Well, Noah, of course, preached for 120 years. And people had a general idea that there was judgment coming. And probably when all the animals started showing up for the ark, that should have probably tipped a few of them off. But what happened to them? They were caught completely unaware. God shut the ark, and then what happened? You started having drops of rain fall from the sky, which has never happened. And you could go talk to your great, 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 great grandpa who had been around for 800 years, and he couldn't remember it ever happening. And what did the flood do? It swept them all away. Who got swept away in the flood? The unbelievers got swept away in the flood. And Christ said in the same manner, in the same manner, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and one will be left. The word taken, paradidomy, means to take off, to, to be taken over to judgment. So the Greek text would say that who gets taken away? Unbelievers. Who is left to do what? To enter the kingdom. What is, what is Christ going to send his angels to do at the end of the age? They're going to go and they're going to gather out of his kingdom all things that what? Offend. And throw them where? Into outer darkness where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's the parable of the tares. Right? And the parable of the dragnet. Who gets gathered out of the world and thrown into the fire? Unbelievers. And, and all I'm trying to do here is be consistent with the imagery. That's all, that's all we're trying to do here. Read it with, with the normal context. And Christ said, just as in the days of Noah, the unbelievers were taken away, so in the days of my coming, the unbelievers will be taken away. And in both cases, they're taken away to what? Judgment. Sure. So even if there was something unusual, like seeing these animals or yeah. talking rain, they just went on. They went on with their normal life. Yeah. There are going to be some people that are planning events, and Christ is going to come back and ruin it because they're not ready. It's the same as today. We see the wars and the rumors of the yeah. earthquakes. We see the earthquakes, and we have neighbors that are just they're oblivious to. Well, and it's not, and here's the other thing too, it's not just oblivious in the general worldwide sense, but even our own personal lives. We make plans. Do we know that those plans will ever happen? I've made reservations for my vacation, but I'm, I might get run over by a truck tomorrow. You know? I mean, we don't know the time. So you've got to be ready at all times. So you're ready at that time. By the way, um, I would hope that you would pray for Terry and Barry. Terry's dad was killed one day. He was the one that was killed in the tanker accident down in Medina. 
Phil Linden, who owned Linden Propane. That's her dad, and he was killed um, in that tanker trash. Yeah. Yeah, the Linden Propane. Yeah, that's 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 her dad. And um Terry's or yeah, Terry. Barry's father is basically in a hospice, you know, just he's got days now. So both of them need our prayers. But but the illustration there is here you've got a man who goes out to get ammonia and next thing you know he's in eternity. He wasn't planning that. We don't know the day or the hour. You've got to be ready, folks. You've got to be ready at all times. And that's what Christ is trying to beat into their heads. Look, just because you see the signs, don't think that you still have opportunity to dilly-dally. You've got to be ready. Because the days of Noah, they came and it swept them all away. And they, they didn't know what was going on. Think of the days of Noah. 120 years that this nut job has been telling you about rain. You didn't listen to him. Did God give you ample opportunity? Yeah. You have no excuse. No excuse. And Christ is trying to say, you've got to be ready. And then he uses the illustration of, of somebody breaking into your house. Yeah, you know, it can happen. But if you knew the time when that thief would show up, you'd be ready for that boy. So what do you need to do? You need to be ready at all times so when he does show up unexpectedly, you're prepared. And it's like a, a servant who, whose master goes away and does some business in another town. And, you know, you didn't have cell phones and telegrams and things in those days. You didn't know when your master would be back. He'd just say, you know, I'm going to be back in a week or two. You didn't know the day. You didn't know the hour he was going to show up. So if you're a steward of his household, what do you need to do? You need to be ready at all times for his return so that when he does show up, you're not caught off guard. You're not caught drunk. You're not caught beating the other servants. You need to be ready. Because if you're not, you're going to be caught off guard and you're going to be get, get, get your portion with the hypocrites. You've got to be ready. And it's like ten virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom to come. They're, they're the friends of the bride. And they're waiting for the bridegroom to come and to collect his bride and go to the feast. And, and while the bridegroom delays his coming for whatever reason, what happens? They find they don't have oil. They're not ready. And while they're trying to get ready, what happens? The bridegroom comes. It's too late. There are going to be people that see the sign of the Son of Man coming and they're saying, I need to get ready but because they're not ready when they see the sign coming, they're not going to have time to get ready while the sign is on its way. They're going to be caught unaware. They're going to be caught off guard. They're not going to be ready. And Christ says, well, how do you be ready? You've got to be ready. You've got to have your lamps trimmed, and you've got to have extra oil. You've got to be ready. And the idea there, we, we don't want to read too much imagery, and that's why you've got to have the Holy Spirit, and yada, yada, yada. You read too much. It's, it's an illustration is all it is. It's, it's like today when, you, you know, if you know the, the, he's going to come back at midnight, you need to have extra batteries for your flashlight. The, the whole point is just to be ready. 
That's, that's what Christ is trying to get across. And then he uses the illustration of a man who goes away and he gives his, each of his servants a talent and says, I want you to see how you manage this. And when he comes back, what is the master, what's one of the first things the master does? He goes and says, well, how'd you do? And one guy says, well, I got five talents from your one. That's pretty good. And what does the master say? Enter into the joy of thy Lord. What is that? The kingdom. Another guy says, I, I took your talent and I got two. Good. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And another, another guy says, well, I got your talent. I didn't do anything with it. I buried it because I know you're a hard guy. And what did that, that master do to that one? Throw him into outer darkness. darkness. What is that a picture of? Hell. What's Christ trying to say there? You need to be ready. And not only do you need to be ready, you need to be ready by taking advantage of whatever opportunities you're given. And if you're just sitting there just saying, well, I'm just going to endure through you and I'm not going to do anything, you might be caught off guard. And you're going to lose what advantage you had. And the people who took advantage of the situation and, and did something with what they had, they're going to be rewarded. You're going to be cast out in the outer darkness. All Christ is trying to get in Matthew 24 and 25 is, look, you need to be ready. When you see the signs, you better be ready or you better get ready right away because you don't know the exact instant I'm going to be there. And if you're not ready, you're going to be swept away. You're going to be locked out of the kingdom. You're going to be like one of the ten, five foolish versions, let us in. I don't know who you are. Who are you? You weren't ready. You weren't prepared. And that's what Christ is trying to get through. You, and, and the scripture has this as a consistent theme throughout scripture. It says you need to be ready now, not later. Today is the day of salvation. And, and theoretically, all of us are going to hear, well, all humans who hear the gospel, at some point in their life will hear it for the last time. And that could be a day before they die. It could be a year before they die. It could be a decade before they die. But they're going to hear it for the last time. And the Bible is urging people, you've got to take advantage of it now because you don't know if you have a tomorrow. Any one of us could, on the way home today could be in a fatal accident and be in eternity. If you're not ready now, you're not ready. Mm -hmm. And he came that close to not being ready. The one he recognized at some point when he died that he was wrong. Mm -hmm. He came very close to not being ready. He did. Christ makes it very clear here. I'm going to come back and when I do, there are going to be millions of people that are caught completely unaware. They're... And it's too late. There comes a point, look, folks, and again, this, this is something we don't like to think too heavily on, but it's true. There comes a point when a person 
goes beyond that grace of God and it's too late for them. We don't know when that is. For the Israelites, they came up to the promised land. God said, take it. They sent the spies in. The spies came back and said, we're toast. We're not going to be able to win. They're going to kill us. They're going to squash us like grasshoppers. The entire congregation mourns all night long. They bawl all night long. The next day, God shows up. He kills the ten spies. Then he tells Israel, you know, because you would not go in, every one of you that are 20 years and up are going to die in the wilderness. Because you wouldn't go in, you can't go in. It's too late. And if you said, gee, I'm sorry, God, God's too late. It's too late. You, you missed your opportunity. It's too late. God will turn them over. And that's the scary point, folks, is we need to encourage people... Look, if God is drawing you, today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. You may not have one. You know. Um, so let's go to Revelation 20 or Revelation 12, and I'll see how far we can get through Revelation 12 here. Um, sorry that took a little bit longer, but, but Matthew 24 and 25 is one of those key passages that really pull a lot of this together for us in our mind. But if we go to Revelation chapter 12, we're going to see a little bit more of this drawn together. And I, I apologize if I have to hurry even here a little bit, but hopefully it'll come together. Revelation chapter 12. Now, now, the problem with the book of Revelation that people have is that it's chronological but not chronological. All right? What I mean by that is there's a general progression of time as you go through Revelation. There's a general progression. But every once in a while there's a passage that sort of like a, remember those kung fu flashbacks? Mm -hmm. Sort of like a flashback. Alright? And it covers greater time. So there's a general progression. It is not strictly chronological. Okay? Although there's a general chronological progression. Revelation 12 is one of those. In Revelation 12 we have the sign of the dragon. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Now I'm not going to go through all of the background of interpreting this for you, which I could, but we don't have the time. Anybody want to venture a guess to who the woman is? Israel. Israel. Okay. Um, now, there's all kinds of wackiness out there with the woman is. Look, the woman is Israel. Crown of 12 stars, 12 tribes. And I think it will be clear later on here. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his head. And on his head, seven diadems. What's this? This is the dragon. Now, who in the world is the dragon? Satan. Not Nero, by the way. It's Satan. All right. It's very clear. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. What is that? What's the stars a reference to? Angels. When Satan fell, who fell with him? About a third of the angelic beings fell with him, who are now demons. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour the child. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. If you get that answer wrong, you, you flunk the class. Who is that? 
Jesus, the Messiah. Psalm chapter 2. The Messiah who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Who delivered, who, who bore the child? What nation bore the child? Israel. It's not talking about Mary, it's talking about Israel. The Messiah came through Israel. What did Satan try to do when Christ was born? Kill him. Mm -hmm. Got Herod to do it. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she, was, she, she is to be nourished for 1260 days. How long is that? Three and a half years. 1260 days. Now, we're going to piece that piece together in a minute here, but this is what we have here. So what's the general imagery? What's the general vision John is seeing? He's seeing, really, this is called the War of the Ages. What happens in the War of the Ages? Well, Israel brings forth the Messiah. What does Satan try to do? Kill the Messiah. The Messiah is protected sovereignly by God. And what happens to the woman? Well, she is protected again sovereignly by God for a period of time. All right, that's what we have so far. Now, war was in heaven. The war rose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great red dragon was thrown down, that ancient servant who was called the devil and Satan. Well, that'll tell you who he is right there. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, when does this happen? Well, it depends on whether you're a covenant theologian or not. You're from the covenant theologian position. You say, well, Satan has already been thrown out of heaven. He's not there now. Well, what's the problem with that statement? He has access to heaven. He's certainly not tossed out of heaven yet. That's not what this is. That's not the interpretation here. When is this going to happen? I think it's a future reference, right? What's going to happen partway through the tribulation? What's going to happen during that time at the end? Satan is going to be thrown out of heaven. When does that happen? Apparently about halfway through the tribulation. What does it mean that he's thrown out of heaven? He loses access to the throne of God. Not only him, but all of his demons. Now right now, does Satan have access to heaven? Yes. How do we know it? Because heaven rejoices that he's not there anymore. Look what's happened here. And I alert a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down, who accuse them day and night before our God. What is Satan's job? He accuses the brethren. And finally God got rid of him. He's not in heaven anymore. And what does heaven do? It rejoices. No more devil in heaven. There's great joy. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. If, if Satan is thrown out of heaven and he's confined to this world, how is he going to respond? In great fury. What makes the last half of the tribulation so bad? All the fallen angels and Satan are here. They're all here. And they can't get out, they can't leave here. They're, they're confined here. I don't know. Now, I don't know how, what, is, what does it mean that Michael fights them? I, I don't know how that all works. How does Michael fight him? Does he beat him up? I don't know how that all works. 
But there's an imagery here. What is the imagery? Satan is finally thrown out of heaven. He's not there. This, this, this passage has been wrongly interpreted a lot. A lot. That it means way back in Genesis when he was. No. But it's not. No, because you see him having access to heaven in the Old Testament. You see, the, you see Job 1 and Job 2, he has access to heaven. In, in, in the book of Zechariah, where you have Joshua standing before God, and you have Satan there accusing him. I mean, again and again, you see that... Now, Satan does not live there. That's not his abode where you know, he's there all the time. But he certainly has access to heaven. All right? Yeah. And when the dragon saw, now, now it's going to connect. Listen, what it's going to do here is connecting two threads. There's the thread of the woman, and there's the thread of the serpent. Follow that? Now it's going to connect the two together. The first part of the passage was talking about the woman who gave birth to the man-child. The second part so far has been Satan being cast out of heaven. Now it's going to connect the two together. And it's okay, when this dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Who is that? Israel. What is, happens halfway through the tribulation? If you're in Judea, flee for the mountains. Don't look back. Don't go down to your house to get anything. Get out of there. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place she is to be nourished for a time and times, and half a time. Okay, so that connects 1260 with time, times, and half a time. So you're connecting things together now. Three and a half years. What is this? Well, I don't know how this is all going to operate, but somehow God is going to sovereignly preserve a large part of Israel through this time of great tribulation. And although Satan is going to go after them, God is going to sovereignly protect them. How? Don't know. Where? Don't know. How is he going to work it out? Beats me. We don't know. It could be in Petra. Some have said, well, they're protected in Petra. I don't know that. That's the place of the rock, that place you've got to go through on a camel to get into this great fortress. You know, I, Look, we don't know how God is going to do this, but God is going to sovereignly protect Israel in some way so that they cannot be harmed. Right, you run, you get out of there. And somehow God is going to sovereignly protect. Now, does he protect every Israelite? Well, no, but, but there's going to be a, a large number that God sovereignly, omnipotently, supernaturally protects. Right. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river the dragon had poured from his mouth. The idea there is he tried to drown the woman who's getting away faster than he can get there. So he sends this flood after her and it doesn't work. The ground opens up. Now, I don't know if that's this is the way to understand it, but often the concept of a flood in these contexts is seen as a great army. Maybe he sends the great army and God supernaturally kills them. That's a possibility there as well. Don't... Again, we don't know the specifics, but what do we know? God's going to sovereignly protect them, and in spite of the, Satan trying to destroy Israel with a flood or whatever that, however that takes shape, God is going to sovereignly protect his people. He's not going to allow them to be harmed. And the dragon became furious with the woman 
He can't get to her. He can't get to this sovereignly protected group of Israelites. So what's he going to do? He went out to make war with the rest of her offspring. Well, who would that be? Other Jews that, that weren't there. And there's Jews all over the world. He's going to go make war with them. And on those who listen, keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who is that? Believers. What's Satan going to go after? He's going to go after every Israelite he can get his hands on. And he's going to go after all the believers. And how long is this going to happen? Time, time, half a times, 1260 days, 42 months, where he is going to have that authority. So, Alan, it does say, too, that there are going to be believers here mm -hmm. in the last three and a half years. Some people teach that if you're not saved before the rapture, you won't be saved. No, you're, the Bible teaches if you're not saved before you die, you're not saved. Yeah, I don't buy that. Um, that. That's an obtuse surrendering of a passage that says he'll send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie who did not believe the truth. Um, I, I don't think that... Don Ingram held to that, by the way, that if you heard you know, the, the gospel before the rapture and then you didn't believe, you would never believe. I, I don't buy that. No, because it says that you know, the testimony of Jesus Christ. These people, there are going to be a lot of people saved during the tribulation. In fact, there's going to be a worldwide revival that we've not ever seen. To this point, all right. Um, but I, I don't think that's a strict rendering of that Thessalonians passage. We talk about that later, but that's not. I think your opportunity ends when you die. From our perspective, now look. Again, you got to put on two hats, right? From God's perspective, He knows if you've passed the line, right? If you've crossed the line, God knows that. But I don't know that. I know that you're alive. Therefore, you have what? From my perspective, you have an opportunity. Never give up on people. Right? Never give up. You don't know. You have no idea. You can't say, well, that person's apostate. They'll never believe. Right. They, you find out that they're a Christian later on. I mean, don't ever give up. God, God takes care of that for you. Yeah. She, Donna writes to missionaries and she got a missionary last week from this guy who said he's been praying for his mom for 34 years and finally she came to know the Lord. Don't give up. As long as that person is alive, they have an opportunity from our perspective. Now maybe they have crossed the line. I don't know. Don't even try to go there. Think of the Apostle Paul. How many, how many people in the early church gave up on Paul? Remember when God told Ananias to go talk? He said, well, now, wait a minute. That's a guy killing all of us. You, you sure about this? Don't give up. When you turn it together, Revelation 13 and... We're going to get that next. And Revelation 20, the question that was asked a moment ago or uh, about if you're not saved before the rapture, is there any hope? Well, it says clearly in Revelation 13 about the mark of the beast and if some don't receive it because they remember having been taught right. the gospel though they didn't accept it are the same people in Revelation 20 first couple of verses who are the martyrs right. who didn't receive the mark right. who are yes yeah. 
As far as the Bible's concerned, your day of grace is over when you die. With God, it might be a different matter, but we don't know the mind of God. We don't go there. I guess from a practical point of view, Satan's objective is to destroy Jesus and believers mm -hmm. at all times. Yeah. He doesn't really care what system you believe in as long as it's not the system of Christianity or what God teaches. He yeah. Yeah. Who is he attacking? Those that are believing. Yes. Absolutely. Then in Revelation 13, we have the imagery of the unholy trinity. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, ten diadem on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, its mouth like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. I wish I had time to go through all of the explanation of this. I don't. You can read about it. But what is this? This is the antichrist, the instead of Christ or the against Christ person. Where does he come? He comes out of the sea. What is the sea and imagery of the nations? He comes out of the sea. And he looks like what? Well, he looks like these three animals, a leopard, a bear, and a lion. Where did those pop up again in Scripture? Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, you have the lion, Babylon, the bear, Medo-Persia, the leopard, which is Greek empire. And then you have the diverse beast, which is the, the Roman empire. What is this? This is sort of like a, a coalescing of all of these great world empires. It's the final form of human rebellion against God. All of them rolled into one, so to speak. And one of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. What is that? Boy, I don't know. Some say, well, the Antichrist uh, was killed and he was brought back to life. He, he, he survived an assassination attempt. or a I don't know. I do know this. Whatever happens is of such a miraculous, seems to be of such a miraculous thing, such a miraculous thing that the whole earth does what? Worship him. Whatever that is. Whatever happens. We, and it could be a resurrection. It could be, you know, if you read the, late, uh, the Left Behind series, it's a, I guess it's an assassination attempt in there. I don't know what it is. But the whole point is, whatever it is, it is so... Striking that he survives this thing, that everybody on the planet is in awe of this. So it's got to be something big. <laughs> All right? And they say, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? The idea there, that's, that's words of worship. Who is like him? Who can, who can stand against this beast? And why? Because he has the power of who behind him? Satan. This is the great Antichrist. They're fear and worship. Both. Yeah, but I mean, it, it's. Why do we have a fear or reverence for the Lord? Mm hmm. These seem to be words of fear and 
They are fear and impotence, but they are also in awe of his power because it says they worship him. I mean, it does say they worship him. And it also, it's also reminiscent like who is like the Lord. You know, you go through Psalms where it says who is like the Lord who made this and made that. And, you know, Hosea and, and other, you know. So, so there's, there's a worship component here. And, of course, what does Satan want? Worship. And, by the way, what does the second beast do? He causes all the world to worship the first beast. There is worship here. Yeah. That's, you know, I haven't, I've not read a book yet about him being the Antichrist. That, that's a, you could probably write something like that. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and was allowed to exercise power, exercise authority for how long? 42 months. It all connects, right? 1260, three and a half, 42. So when does he get his authority? His, when does the Antichrist really get all of his authority? The last half of the tribulation. What's he doing in the first half? He's working his way into the into things, but he does not have authority over the whole world until the second half. It opened his and um, and it opens his mouth to utter blasphemous words against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. Also, was allowed to make war on the saints to conquer them. God allowed them to go after the Christians to kill them. See, that's bad. No, that's good, right? As a Christian, would you rather be here or in heaven? Yeah, see, that's a no-brainer, right? If you're going to be here or in heaven, I'll take heaven any day. That's a win. And all who dwell on the... And it says here, And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, whose names are not written in the... Book of life of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Who's going to worship the beast? Every person who is non-elect will worship the beast. All of them. How do you not worship the beast? Well, your name is in the book of life. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, the captivity goes. If anyone is to be slain by the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now, what is verse 10 saying? I think what verse 10 is saying is this. And I'm, again, I apologize we don't have time to really spend a week going through this and explaining it and doing our inductive Bible study. I'm giving you the short answer here. But I think what it's saying is, look, God is sovereignly in control. If, you're, if your lot is to go into captivity, go to captivity. It's to be killed, allow yourself to be killed. Why? Because God's going to take care of you anyways. What's the endurance and patience of the faith? It's to do whatever God has allotted for you. And to not fight against it, not war against it, not try to, to buck it. These will be the saints that are saved during the tribulation period. Yes. There's going to be a lot of people saved. and These are the martyrs under the altar. These are the ones that are coming out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the people being slaughtered by the Antichrist. And even though they lose, they win. All right? Then he says, I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast in its presence. makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. This is why some say it was a resurrection. I, again, I don't know. But whatever it is, it was of such magnitude that the whole earth wonders. And what does the second beast do? He causes the world to worship the first beast. And how does he do that? 
It performed great signs and wonders, even making fire come down from heaven in, to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and lived. Again, it would appear to be a resurrection. We don't know. And was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It also causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And what's the number? 666. What is that? I don't know. You know, we have these old numbers where you got, you know, got a big six tattooed on your forehead. I, what is this? number of man and, and, and most likely it's some maybe subdural chip that you're implanted with that makes you part of the system alright which by the way they already have you know that right they put chips in animals they already have that it's already there it's just that we've not done it yet but what is this he, he causes the entire world to worship the beast and how is it that you show your loyalty to worship the beast you receive this mark and if you do what happens your time's up your time's up. In what sense? You might live another three and a half years, but because you have the mark of the beast, you've, you've made a final revolt against God. If you receive the mark of the beast, there's no hope for you. But there's going to be a lot of them that do not receive the mark of the beast, according to Revelation 20. They're going to be martyred. And some are going to even live all the way through. There's going to be believers that live through the tribulation. Not a lot, but some. Now how does... Yeah. Yeah, but that's an invisible one. God marks out his own. He knows who they are. Um, God marks them out. And, you know, how do you respond to all of this? We, we went through this a little quicker. I wish I had more time, but the other class will get mad if we're not out of here. Um, yeah. Uh, but how do you respond to this? Well, the response to this is you need to be ready now. Now, I know some people say, well, I'm not sure this thing's going to all work out the way you said it is. So I'm going to wait, and if all of a sudden all the Christians disappear, then I'll believe. Well, that is a stupid thing to say, right? Because now what are you facing? Seven years of tribulation, and probably you're going to be killed. That's kind of dumb, right? Believe now. And here's the other thing. If you put, here, here's the thing you've you got to keep telling people. If, you don't, if you're not saved now, you may never get saved because you may be part of the strong, those who are given a strong delusion to believe the lie. Or you might even die. I mean, you might get hit by one of the meteorites that hit the earth. You don't know if you're going to live. You have no idea whether you're going to make it through to the end. Now's the time to believe. You may not have it tomorrow. All right? So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this day and for this word. And we, we went through it a little quickly. I'd like to spend a little more time in it, but I pray that you would help us to understand the high points here and maybe do our own research to look at it more closely. Thank you for this day, and thank you for taking care of us. In Christ's name, amen. amen. By the way, if you have questions, email me, and I'll try to answer them. All right?